Good morning. We're the Hamiltons, one of the elder families here at, um, uh, at Four Oaks Community Church. The scripture that we'll be reading this morning is from John 18, 1 through 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kindron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I I have not lost one. Then Simon Peter having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers and the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caliphus, sorry about that, um, who was high priest that year. It was Caliphus who had arrived, advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, since that disciple was known to the um, was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So another disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of the man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogue and in the temple, where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Uh, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear had Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. May God bless the reading of his scripture. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is a long text, and it's a hard text. It's not a hard text to understand. It's just a hard text to to digest, to see this faithful, zealous man of God um, fall. And so, Lord, we're, we're asking for grace not to point Peter, uh, fingers at Peter and Judas, but to say, there, there we are, that's us. And to know where to find mercy and grace in our, in our time of need. So, Lord, that's our prayer this morning. I pray that you would empower the words um, with your Holy Spirit. You would write them on our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm Paul, once again, welcome to Four Oaks. I'm Paul Gilbert, um, the lead pastor here. We, we, we definitely wanted to throw you off on Veterans Day weekend, so we, we struck those chairs from the back and flushed all the back row Baptists out and like sent you to the front. And so I'm thoroughly enjoying seeing the whites of your eyes for people who are usually back there. But nonetheless, those of you who don't know me, I, I grew up in Tennessee, went to, the col- went to college at the University of Tennessee. In some of the, those best years of our life, we, we spent taking road trips to Tennessee football games back when we played a little football and were pretty decent at football. And we journeyed to some of the hollowed stadiums in the SEC where they do play the best football in the nation. And that would be places like Auburn and, and Georgia and Alabama. And one of the things that we would do is we would record the games. And when I mean record the games, I don't mean set it up on our app to record. I mean like we put the, VH te- the VHS tape in the machine, you know, programmed it in. And when we would get back from the road trip, we would sit down and watch the game on VHS until we got to the spots where they had the shots of the crowd. And that, that's where we, 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 we love to slow the tape way down. Like we would freeze frame it because we were looking for whom? Ourselves, of course, right? This is the 1989 version of the selfie. So we were just having, we would have so much fun with that. There's this game that's going on, but, but we were interested in knowing what was happening at any given point in time with us in the stands. And we would replay it over and over and rewind it and freeze frame. And in a lot of ways... The gospel, in the Gospel of John, the last week of Jesus' life is the game, so to speak. There, there's, there is so much that's packed into these last 11 chapters of John. We, going back to John chapter 11, the last week of Jesus' life, there is just this flurry of activity. There is Lazarus being raised from the dead and the triumphal entry. And they go into the temple area and Jesus is overturning the tables. He's confronting the religious leaders. He is... There is just this, this cauldron of, of excitement and, and, and turmoil that's boiling over until we get to John 13 through 17, which is where we've been the last few months. And it's here that metaphorically, so to speak, John slows the action down. He, he, runs, he, he hits pause. He, he, he takes us through frame by frame these very last hours of Jesus's life. And that's where we've been. But here as we get to John 18, 
the game picks right back up, so to speak. And over these next few weeks, John is going to move us rapidly through this gospel. In fact, we're going to be done with the gospel of John by the end of January, taking a couple of weeks off at Christmas for, for Adventy sort of things. We'll be talking later about what we're going to be doing after that. But as we get into these narrative sections, um, John kind of re- reverts to storytelling mode. And so we're going to be moving through some large chunks of Scripture here. Now, now this particular scene in John 18 reminds me um, of, of Tommy Lee Jones and a scene from No Country for Old Men. And I do a great Tommy Lee Jones, but you're not going to see it this morning. And, and, and in this scene, Tommy Lee Jones is this is elderly sheriff. He's about to retire, and he's just kind of riding it out. But, but there's this horrific crime that happens, and he, he comes on the scene, and one of his deputies says, well, well, Sheriff, this sure is a mess. To which Tommy Lee Jones says, well, if it ain't a mess, it will do till the mess gets here. That's my favorite line from that movie. And if this is not a mess, it'll do till the mess gets here. This is a a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions, if you've been with us in this Gospel of John, there couldn't, you couldn't script a more tragic ending. Here Jesus has, from the height of popularity and leading his disciples and the people and them getting ready to anoint him as the Messiah, here we have Judas and Peter and the disciples and this corrupt trial and these illegal proceedings that we're going to talk about this morning, in, in effect, the world, all of the world, is literally arrayed against the Savior, against Jesus Christ, against the man who was faultless, the, the God-man. It's a, it's, a, it's a tragic reading. Now, you need to understand something. If, if you're a first-time reader to the Gospel of John when this Gospel was written— the betrayal of Judas would not have been a surprise to you. Think about how many times in the Gospel of John, John has forecasted this for us. He's saying, you know, there was the 12, and then Judas, who would later betray him. And then he would talk about Judas rebuking Mary for pouring the ointment on Jesus' feet. And, and John would say, and this was because Judas was corrupt, and he would later betray Jesus. So the betrayal of, of Judas in this passage is no shock at all. It does not come as a surprise John has forecasted it every step of the way. But Peter, whoa, that's a different, that's a different story altogether. See, we've seen in John's gospel that Peter is the, the chief of the disciples. He's the spokesman. He's bold. He's audacious. He makes big promises. He makes big declarations. Now, granted, he sticks his foot in his mouth about half the time, but poor Peter, we know he is super well-intentioned. He is zealous for the Lord. We know that if we could count on anybody in a pinch in the day of trouble, surely it would be Peter. But as we see, Peter's betrayal takes center stage. And, and, and let me just say something this morning about the way I think John, through the Spirit, wants us to look at this text. The point of this of this passage this morning is not that Peter is bad, don't be like Peter. And then we go off and guess what? We're just like Peter. Because my guess is when it comes to betrayal, we've all seen both sides of this. There's some of you in here this morning who've experienced dramatic, tragic 
betrayals, in your marriage or in your jobs or with a trusted friend. And if you haven't been betrayed, um, that means that just live a little longer and someone will eventually stab you in the back, right? That's, that's going to happen. Some of you have been on the other side of the betrayal. You're the one that's wielded the knife. You're the one that's, that's, that's turned tail, that's turned back. You, you, you can identify with that part of this story. But understand something as we dig into this passage. The point is, don't just try to not be Peter, but know what to do when you are. Know where to go, know where to turn to find the Savior. See, the, the, the central character, the most important character this morning in this passage is not Peter. It's the Savior. So, so three, three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the setting. And, and this will be a little professorial. We're going to walk through this passage. We're not going to get into the dialogue at first because I want you to get the, the grand picture of what's going on and be able to fit all the pieces together. So we're going to look at the setting. We're going to look at the sin. And then ultimately, most importantly, we're going to look at the Savior. So the setting, number one, let's, let's dive in. Look at verse 1. It says that the disciples crossed the Kidron Valley going from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. When the Four Oaks group was in Israel about a year ago, I've got a, a, a much greater appreciation for the way the geography of Israel is laid out. If you think for a second about Florida State University and FAMU and where they're located, you know that they're each kind of on a, on a small hill. And in between that hill is a little, you know, is, is Railroad Square and Gaines Street and College Town. And, and in a lot of ways, Jerusalem is sort of set up like that. On one side, you have the Temple Mount. This is where Jesus would teach and the sacrifices would be offered and Passover was celebrated. Over on the, on the other side you know, um, a quarter of a mile or so, you, you would have the Mount of Olives. And it's not a mount, it's more like a ridge. And in, in between was this place called the Kidron Valley. To go from one to the place to the other, you had to cross that. There was a brook that was making its way down to the, to the Dead Sea. And as Jesus and his disciples are making this trek, I can't help but think that, and we don't know this for sure, we'll, we'll one day we'll see the Lord face to face, we'll ask him, if Jesus would not have thought about his own ancestor, who he came to fulfill the type of King David, King David was on that very same path as he was running away from his own treachery, his own betrayal by the hands of his very own son, Absalom. And here, Jesus has the like experience. His trusted friend, sitting at the seat of honor, offered the bread of peace at the table, Judas. Jesus is on a one-way mission, one-way ticket to meet that betrayal head-on. In verse 2, it, it tells us that he is heading to a garden and this garden, it says in verse 2, was a place the disciples often met. You need to know that the Mount of Olives was a super important place for Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. Remember, Jesus and most of the disciples were from Galilee up in the north. And whenever they would come down to 
or make a road trip, so to speak, down to Jerusalem for Passover or the big game, they would have to have a place to stay. And that place was always situated around the Mount of Olives. Remember, it was in Bethany, which was a couple of miles on the backside of the Mount of Olives, that Jesus would stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. They were his friends. They were his benefactors. They would, they would stay with them. They, they, from sun, they would get up early, early in the morning. They would walk the two miles to Jerusalem. They would minister there all day. And then they would return home at night to stay there. However, because it was so far away relatively on foot, if the disciples and Jesus ever needed a break, if they ever needed to go somewhere to pray or debrief or rest or take a nap, they needed a little halfway place to go. And the Garden of Gethsemane was undoubtedly that place. When it says in, in verse 1 that the disciples entered the garden, most likely, and remember at the time, the whole Mount of Olives was covered in, in olive trees, orchards, so to speak. You won't see that today because the Romans burned them to the ground when they destroyed Jerusalem in A.D. 70. But at the time, it was a thickly wooded area, and all along the, 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 olive, the Mount of Olives, there were private estates, there were private gardens that were walled off, and undoubtedly... Jesus and his disciples, there was another benefactor or a disciple of Jesus who would make this space available, kind of like the, va- the vacation home that folks make available to, to friends and family on the weekend, and they would come, and it was there that they would sort of bro down. They would pray. They would decompress. They would, they would, they would debrief. They would talk about their day. Clearly, it was a place Judas was super familiar with. And it says that he anticipated, he knew Jesus. this is where Jesus was going to take his disciples. He did. And look at verse 3. It says that he procures this, and it really doesn't even, even, even do it justice to say that he, he procured this group. This was, this was nothing less than a mob, because the, the word for Roman band of soldiers here is, is literally the one that means cohort. It was at least, at least 200 soldiers, not to mention all of the chief priests and scribes and Pharisees. I mean, this was a, an, this was a posse. This was, this was a vigilante group that was coming to do justice. And you may say, well, you know, why did they have to bring so much muscle against Jesus and these 11 disciples? Well, because it's Passover. Because Jesus is immensely popular with the crowds. That's why they were arresting him at night. They had to come in the middle of the night with their torches, ready to hunt him down like a scalded dog. They were, they were seeking after him, and they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know if the, if the people would rise up. They didn't know if there would be a, a massive riot. They, didn't know, they, they really didn't know what they were going to find when they got here. And so they all show up ready to suppress this insurrection as necessary. Now, when you look down at the text. And let's go look at verse 15. And we're going to get back to the dialogue in just a second. But it seems that once Jesus was arrested and once they bound him, all the disciples scattered except except Peter, well-meaning Peter, and then it says another disciple which is most likely John. Remember in John's gospel, he has these autobiographical references to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, or the beloved disciple, or the other disciple. 
And as Jesus is being hauled away, they lurk back in the shadows because they want to follow Jesus to find out what they're going to do with him. They're following at a distance. And it says that the disciple, look at verse 15, which was John, was known to the high priest. So John was able to get entryway and get a front row eye testimony seat to the very trial of Jesus before Annas. And it was because of his relationship, he knew the family, that he also brought Peter in. And a lot of people have said, well, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. How in the world could John have ever known, a, a lowly fisherman, ever known somebody in the, in the royal priestly family? Well, let's think about this for a second. The other, and, and guys, I, I share this with you not to be pedantic and professorial, but to show you the reliability of God's word and, and the trustworthiness of it and the historicity of it. Mark tells us that John's mother was a woman named Salome. And Salome was a cousin of whom? Of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Elizabeth was married to Zechariah, who was a what? Priest, who ministered in the temple, who had who had priestly duties. I don't know if they called him Uncle Zechariah, Uncle Z. I don't, I'm not sure how they affectionately referred to him, but clearly this is the connection that God providentially had set up in John's life. And as John is recording here as an eyewitness testimony, he's telling us what happens at the trial of Jesus. He's telling us what happens to Peter. Now, if you, if you look down, you'll notice that in verse 12, it says that they took, they bound Jesus. In verse 13, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest. So you have a little incestuous leadership going on here, right? Now, we know that Annas at one time was the high priest, but the Romans deposed him because they didn't want anybody having that kind of power for the duration of their life. But we know that Jewish law said, once a high priest, always a high priest, and the reason they brought Jesus to Annas before Caiaphas was because Annas was the real power behind the curtain. He, he was the godfather. He, he was the guy that you went to to say, hey, we're about to arrest Jesus and try him and send him to the Romans. Do you sign off on this or not? That's, that's Annas's role. He, he is truly the high priest in the eyes of the people of Israel. So they, they bring Jesus to him. And it says the text that, you look back down at verse, at verse 17, 18, it says that Jesus, that I'm sorry, that Peter was huddled around this fire because it was cold. And, and, and John is making a point here for us to know something. That in Jewish law, trials could only be held during the day. But in Passover, because it was cold at night, warm during the day, kind of like our springs, they, they were having to warm themselves, but they were meeting at night in direct contradiction and violation. It was the ultimate betrayal that they were trying Jesus in this way. You see them questioning Jesus, which was to never happen in a trial. See, our law, okay, the Fifth Amendment to, to protect us from self-incrimination is based on Judeo law in many places. And there was a law in, in the Jewish law which said a, a witness, I'm sorry, the accused did not have to testify against themselves. 
They did not have to be compelled to answer questions. That's the same way it is in our criminal justice system. You actually had to have witnesses to bring a charge. But here we see that this trial is nothing but a sham from start to finish. And John is painting this picture, and it is a bleak one. It is a dark one to highlight the impact of the choice that Peter is about to make. So that's, that's the setting. That's the setting. Now let's look, at a, let's look at the sin. You know, Peter's betrayals, his three denials of Jesus, are always the one that gets the most attention, and understandably so. But I think what John is wanting to show us is that Peter's betrayal of Jesus around this fire did not begin around the fire. It actually began back in the garden. Look back at verse 10. Let me tell you what I mean. In verse 10, it says that Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now, this is probably not like a Braveheart sword. Like Peter wasn't carrying around a sword. We get it? Okay. He probably had a dagger in his cloak. And it says that he, Peter took this opportunity to, to defend Jesus. He, see, he sees him being unjustly arrested, rushes to cut off the ear of, the, of, the, of Malchus. And, and even though John doesn't tell us this, the other, the other gospels do, that Jesus proceeds to reattach the ear of the high priest. Now, why does he do that? Because if he doesn't do that, Peter's a dead man. He, he would have been killed on the spot. But when we hear about this, I'll be honest with you, when I read this passage, and if you read it, what is your initial impulse when you hear that, 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 that Peter stood up to all of these treacherous people trying to betray Jesus? What's your response? I'm like, go Peter, right? Everybody needs one of those swords. What is, what's going on with these guys? I mean, this is... This is, this is Peter moving towards the action. This is the ultimate act of bravery. But I think John is wanting to show us something for Oaks, and it's simply this. This is not the ultimate act of bravery. It's actually an act of faithlessness. It's actually zeal without knowledge. Now, why do I say that? All through this gospel and the other gospels, there's one thing that Jesus wants to make super clear to the disciples all along the way, and what is it? I'm not here to set up a kingdom. I'm on my way to Jerusalem to what? Die. Time after time after time. Think about the time that, that in, the, in the other gospels when Jesus pulls the disciples down, he explains to them he's got to go up to Jerusalem to be delivered up to the chief priest, to be put to death, who was it that objected the most loudly and said, Lord, may it never be? Who was that? Oh, it was Peter. And what did Jesus tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't have the purposes of God in mind. See, this was something that had been made clear to Peter, to the disciples over and over and over again. It's been a repeated warning. So when Peter shows up in verse 11, Jesus 
rebukes him. He says, so, so Jesus said to Peter, look there, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, the problem is not that Peter didn't understand what Jesus had said. The problem was that he didn't like it. If you won't fix it, God, the way I think you ought to fix it, in the time that I think you ought to fix it, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. There's a great lesson here. You see, faithlessness doesn't just show up in cowardice. Faithlessness doesn't just show up in not being bold or not being courageous. Faithlessness just doesn't happen when you decide to be passive and do nothing. Faithlessness can happen just as easily by not waiting on the Lord, by not being prayerful, by rushing in to fix something in the way that you think it ought to be fixed when it ought to be fixed. And God, I, I don't have time to wait around while X, Y, and Z happens. You, something has to be done right here, right now, today. You know, in an age of instant response where you can respond to, to anything and everything by simply clicking a button, right? Social media, text, email, not to mention phone call. We need to be reminded as God's people that sometimes we would be better served by simply doing nothing but pray. You see, zeal without knowledge can be just as deadly as cowardice in running away. See, see a lot of times we'll, we'll see something that God is, is doing and it's not happening fast enough for us. We'll, there may be a prodigal in our lives and, and we're watching their life sort of deconstruct and we say, oh God, may it never be. I'm going to move in and fix that situation. And God says, no, you don't. Just stay back, let this unfold, and let me work. Watch me work. See, Peter here is not prayerful. He's not seeking after the Lord. Now, why do I say this? What was happening right before this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane? As Jesus was praying, what were the disciples doing? Sleeping. What did Jesus ask Peter and the disciples to do? pray. Jesus had slept through prayer time in the garden, and he was not fortified in his faith. Just, for, just let, the, let, let this stick wherever it may. Where's something in your life right now where God is simply calling you to wait? God is simply calling you to be patient. God is calling you to pray faithfully, to fast to submit yourself to wait upon him when every impulse in you is i don't want to do that pastor paul that sounds so inefficient that sounds oh my gosh that's uh, i i'm impatient and i've got to make something happen and i've and god is just showing us john is showing us that faithfulness oftentimes shows itself in prayerful waiting 
Which brings us to the, the three denials around the fire. When you look at verses 17, 25, and 27, something you need to know here is that, and archaeological finds have, have borne this out, that Annas most likely lived in a palatial estate, a palatial mansion that was located on the side of the, the Temple Mount. They've, they've uncovered archaeological remains, and in a lot of ways, you know, Americans are drawn to mid-century modern architectural design, indoor-outdoor space, you know, where you have, like, you'd be inside, then you go out into a courtyard, and you have the doors open. That's how, that's how most Jewish mansions were designed at the time, and it allowed them to take advantage of the Mediterranean climate. But I say all that to say that Clearly, what's, what's probably what the setup here is, is that Peter and these soldiers are out in the courtyard, outside, warming themselves around the fire. Jesus is in the house, being tried among these Jewish leaders, but these spaces are contingent upon one another. They're congruent. They're side by side. Peter most likely had a direct line of vision right into what was happening with Jesus. Peter, Jesus had a direct line of vision to what was going on with Peter. So you can see how John has set this up. It reads like a drama. While Jesus is inside being, betray, uh, be, being betrayed, Peter is outside doing the betraying. And it's this tense sort of back and forth. In fact, we know in Luke 22 that when, Jesus, when Peter issued his third denial, it says that Jesus did what? He turned and he looked at him. And it says that Peter went away and wept. But we can imagine Peter there. We know he's not just huddled up because he's cold. He's huddled up because he's ashamed. See, he ran away. He wasn't able to save Jesus. Jesus rebuked him in front of everyone, right? When you cut off the enemy's ear and Jesus puts it back on, that's a big rebuke. Peter is huddled around this fire He's hearing Jesus being beaten and questioned in the next room. We imagine his fear is growing. He's in a weakened state already. And boom, just like that, verse 17, he denies Christ. And it's just a reminder for us. Sometimes, with just one choice, our life can change that quickly. Something that's built for years, decades, lifetimes, sometimes can be undone from a human perspective in a matter of moments. And we see here, I think, what John is wanting to show us is Peter's descent, his spiral down. And, and we get this, don't we? The way that sin can beget more sin. You know, I, I'm you know, men, you are, you are struggling with stress and anxiety at work, conflict at work, sin at work, and then you turn to something else to alleviate your feelings of shame and guilt, but it only makes the situation 10 times worse. You turn to pornography, or you turn to illicit relationship, or, or the choices go on and on and on. But we see this pattern with, with Peter. As, as he denies Christ, his shame becomes greater. His sin becomes greater. He becomes smaller. Till finally, 
in verse 27, he just implodes in guilt and shame. And just like Peter, instead of running to Jesus, we run away from him. Or we lurk back. Or we don't come into the light. Remember, Peter was not there by himself. Who was there with him? John. Jesus betrayed, Jesus did not, Peter denies Jesus. John, I have to tell you, I just denied our Lord. Help me, pray for me. There's, there's Jesus right there. Peter still could have come to Jesus and said, Jesus, I, I, find, I need to find mercy and grace in my time of need. But his unconfessed, unrepented sin only begets more sin. And it's another grim lesson for us, and here it is. And we have to have the ears to hear. Because we are never too far along or too mature in our faith to profoundly fail. We, we, we never reach a point where, where we have attained a level to say, I'm beyond being able to fall. Don't even have to begin to tell you all the warnings from Scripture which says he who thinks he is something is really nothing. Humble yourselves in the sight of God. Who said that, by the way? Peter. So we're never too far along or too mature in our faith to profoundly fail. However, and this brings us to our last point, we have never sinned or betrayed enough to be out of the grasp of the grace of our Savior. Because here's what I want you to see in this last point. That even from the time prior to when Jesus was betrayed by Peter, Jesus was preparing a path of restoration and grace back from Peter to him. Hey, let's look back at the text. When you look at verse 5, and they, they, asked, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, or they asked, whom, whom do you seek? And Jesus said, verse 5, I am he. That's, in the Greek, it literally, it does not say he. That's only put in there so it makes for an easier read. But he literally says, ego ami, I am. And that should ring a bell for us. That's what almost got Jesus stoned in John 8, when they asked him who sent him, and he said, I am. I am who I am, the, the self-declaration as God. And isn't it interesting, any time in the Bible, when God shows up, when he manifests his glory, whether it's the Apostle John and the risen Christ in Revelation 1, or Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah is in the throne room, but over and over again, when God shows up and manifests his glory... What do people do? They go low. They fall down. They hug the dirt. They are looking for a place to hide because sinful man cannot withstand the glory of God. We don't know how Jesus manifested himself here, but we do know that all he said was, I am. And they were all prostate on the ground. You see, I think Jesus, John is wanting to show us that from start to finish in this passage, 
Jesus was in absolute charge of what was going on. He was the sovereign Savior. Here's just a couple of ways. Jesus went to the garden intentionally. Why? Because he knows that's where he has to go to be betrayed. If you're Jesus, don't you go in the opposite direction? Jesus goes right into the the teeth of the tiger. We see Jesus taking the initiative from start to finish here. Listen, look back in the text. Knowing beforehand all the things that were going to happen to him, what does Jesus do? It says he went out. He met the entourage, the posse. He addressed them. He initiated to them. He asked them, who do you seek? See, he's placing himself forward. He's saying, don't take these men. They have nothing to do with this. Take me. And I think John is just is giving us a not-so-subtle picture here. of the, This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Here is the sinless Savior who's done nothing to deserve judgment and death. The disciples who are faithless, sinful people. And Jesus says, take me, not them. And I think you see the gospel around this charcoal fire as well. That while Peter was out in the courtyard betraying Jesus, Jesus was inside getting ready to be executed for the very sin of Peter's betrayal. That is the gospel, folks. See, and and I believe even at this moment, even in that moment, Jesus is preparing the way for Peter's restoration. See, there's one other time in John's gospel when this, this figure of a charcoal fire is mentioned. It's actually in John 21, and we'll get there here in a couple of months and a few weeks. You remember that Jesus at this point, this is after the resurrection, Jesus has appeared to the disciples, but he hasn't appeared yet personally to Peter. The last interaction Peter has personally with Jesus up to that point is that Jesus looks him in the eye when Peter betrays him. But it says that Peter is out fishing and Jesus is on shore cooking fish around what? John tells us a charcoal fire. And as Peter comes up and Jesus questions him, Three questions for three denials. Questions very simple. Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response is, yes, Lord. And because of this, Peter is restored. See, the most important actor in this passage this morning is not Peter, The decisive action is not his three betrayals. The decisive figure is not Judas and his scheming or Caiaphas or Anaphas or the sham of a trial. The most important person in this story is Jesus, and the most important action is his. Do you love him? Then come to him. Run to him. Just like Peter in the boat shedding off his clothes, running to the shore to embrace Jesus, knowing that Jesus is faithful even when we are faithless. 
See, we're never too far or too mature in our faith to profoundly fall, devastatingly fall. But we've never sinned enough to be out of the grasp of the Savior. And that while Jesus, while Peter is despondent in guilt and shame, just as so, so often we are, Jesus is back on shore preparing a meal for him. He's preparing a meal for us. Now, we're going to take this communion meal, but understand that's, that this is just a sign. This is just a shadow. This is just to remind us as we come to the table this morning that Jesus has prepared the table of grace for you. Regardless of whatever betrayal you've experienced or you have dispensed, Jesus says, my fellowship, my peace, my grace, my mercy is open to you. Will you come and eat with me? Let's pray.